Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Mikla Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a Changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. In today's episode, I am talking with Adrienne Young, who is a lecturer in law at City University and has done quite a lot of work on EU law and questions of citizenship and freedom of movement. I'm going to start, Adrienne, by asking you to tell me a little bit about the day of your PhD viva. Well, it's a rather interesting story. It wasn't exactly the day of my viva. So I had my viva and I had submitted my final corrections for approval. This day was the 23rd of June 2016, which listeners might recognize. I received an email which said that my EU law PhD had been approved on that day. And then I woke up the next day and we had voted to leave the EU. And then... There were questions around the relevance of my PhD after that. And yeah, here we are now today, I suppose. Maybe a good kind of entree into this, uh, into talking about um, the morning after the day before, is um, to tell us a little bit about your PhD and what you were focusing on, particularly in respect to EU law. So I've always been really interested in EU citizenship and the rights of EU citizens in terms of free movement and residency. My PhD in particular is about the relationship between EU citizenship status and the wider set of rights that an individual enjoys and can benefit from in terms of human rights. So my PhD tracked a lot of the case law. So it's a very legal doctrinal PhD where I looked at all of the case law and I found a pattern in the case law from the beginning until arguably whenever I submitted my manuscript in terms of having a very strong what I called a fundamental rights discourse. So in a lot of the cases, the reason why the court decided to grant an individual the right to reside or family permit or whatever it was they were seeking, it was because I argued that the individual was also a human and had human rights or fundamental rights as they're known as in the EU. So I linked those together. And actually in my PhD was quite interesting. I started it with very high expectations for positive outcomes from the court, thinking that it would be great. And I would be very much arguing for a strong human rights discourse. And I would see that very much proven in the case law. Um, this was also because the Treaty of Lisbon, um, the most recent revision of the EU treaties, had raised the status of fundamental rights. So they were now binding the Charter of Fundamental Rights, where a lot of fundamental rights in the EU comes from, was binding. So I thought, OK, great, it's binding now. Citizenship has existed for so many more years. So an EU citizen with binding fundamental rights should be protected in many, many situations by virtue of them just being an EU citizen. The reality was that, and that was the argument that I eventually made, though it took a lot of trials and tribulations during my doctoral research to finally accept this, was that there were a significant amount of political crises or political factors that affected the court's decision making, meaning that instead of wholeheartedly throwing themselves into a fundamental rights discourse that would really um, substantiate the status of being an EU citizen, the court 
were a little more cautious and decided that I think as a reaction to the political things happening, which included things like the Eurozone crisis, the migrant crisis, and little did we know, but I suppose the lead up to the UK's referendum on the EU, that they did not want to appear as activist as they perhaps appeared in the earlier days of citizenship, where they were really trying to substantiate the status. So I call my book, which um, the PhD is based on my monograph, is called The Rise and Decline of Fundamental Rights in EU Citizenship, because I saw an initial rise and a real um, kind drive. Of willingness to embrace it. Exactly. Very much a willingness to embrace it. And then suddenly, because of the crises and political status of, you know, perhaps even accepting the project of the EU and its integration, a decline in the case law of the court. This is so interesting. I am not, I'm a real novice when it comes to thinking about questions of human rights and fundamental rights. But I had realised that it's one of those things that kind of has really kind of come to the fore in discussions, particularly the legal discussions around Brexit and what it means for people. What do you think are the, you know, because you're the kind of expert on this, why is it a problem if EU citizenship is not underpinned by fundamental rights? Well, it's interesting because, and about an hour ago, I was literally teaching this exact thing to my students. The historical development of the EU, in the sense that it started off as a purely economic entity, which did not consider at all human rights protection at the outset, has really influenced, I think, how EU citizenship has developed. And so I noticed that at the very beginning, EU citizenship was very much cleaved to the people, first of all, who were economically active. So it was mainly a status for people who had worked, so who were workers. And it has been coined by um, many academics before me as what is known as market citizenship. Um, so really commoditized, I suppose, or only protecting those who were deserving of being protected because they had contributed to the economy. So laborers. Laborers, exactly. All workers. Um, and... It emerged because of the way that I think the EU developed that they couldn't simply protect those who just who worked because it was not like there were people out there who just decided not to work and that's why they should be punished, let's say, for it. There were people who involuntarily could not work and the main um, groups would be disabled individuals or perhaps children. And that is why I think the fundament where the fundamental rights element comes in, because it would appear to be a breach of fundamental rights to exclude these individuals for something that was not really their, um, let's say, their, their choice. And if citizenship is supposed to promote non-discrimination and equal treatment, then that seems to be a little bit out of sync. So the market citizenship model did persist for quite some years, but I still argued that there was an element of non-discrimination, which is a human right, that pervaded throughout and eventually became more prominent. Well, when the court decided that it was time for us to support a more social and political EU in general. I'm really starting to understand a lot of things that had kind of been ticking around in my brain for a long time. I suppose there's a difference though, isn't there, between the kind of ambition to, to underpin it with these fundamental rights and actually there was removal, I suppose, of the previous 
kind of structures which would have been enforced by the labour market. And my understanding of looking at something like freedom of movement is that even if the kind of ambition might have been eventually to actually um, model it on this form, a more social form of citizenship, that actually what it did was reproduce the labour market understanding of citizenship. I mean, that's certainly arguments of some people, definitely. Um, and I would say that is where my, you know, the coinage of the term, the rise and decline of fundamental rights and citizenship kind of comes back to, because I argue that there was a significant rise to move away from this, you know, commoditization or the labor market concept of citizenship. And now, because there is a lot more you know, skepticism and um, dissatisfaction with the EU project, there is actually been what appears to be a bit more of a step back to returning to their roots in the market. Um, so it's kind of come full circle, which is not what I hoped, I suppose, when I entered to do this research. And I mean, I suppose then in that regard, the rise and decline is not so much a rise and decline, but it's more, you know, like a like a like a return, return to market citizenship, which um, a couple of scholars have have indeed argued. And as you said before, this is not just because of Brexit. <laughs> not at all. And this is, I think, um, one of these things. So I um, was I, I like to describe it as maybe being pushed into Brexit or thrust into Brexit um, with when my research. <laughs> exactly. You know, n not unlike anybody else. Um, so because of the timing, I suppose, of my um, PhD being confirmed on the 23rd of June um, in 2016, I begun to think, OK, well, this quite significant thing has happened. And I have always really been about advocating for the citizens, um, hence my um, approach in terms of fundamental rights discourse, because that really puts the citizen at the heart of the thinking of the court of justice, which would not be the same case in terms of market citizenship, where actually I would say that that promotes economic objectives. And so I thought, you know what? There are now a huge number of EU citizens with who used to be protected from violations of their fundamental rights by virtue of them being EU citizens. And now Brexit is removing this framework of protection. I don't know. I feel like I had to. I had to research this just because I, I, had to, I had to protect these people. Not that I'm particularly protecting them, but that was the thought process behind it. I suppose it's it's that moment, isn't it? And, you know, like it or not, Brexit is a moment that has kind of reignited some of the questions that we may have had about our relationship with the European Union and what the removal of that then means for the people that we've worked with or for the laws that we've worked with in your case. And I guess it's a kind of, for any people who are EU law specialists, that must have been quite a tricky moment. Yeah, I think um, it was it was quite interesting. So I sent an email around to my colleagues being like, uh, my Viva has been confirmed, my PhD has been confirmed. And, you know, I received a couple of joking email replies being like, oh, you know, what's the relevance of your PhD? I hope you'll be important still. And I mean, in this sense, I have found that EU lawyers are incredibly important um, simply because we do have the expertise that that is going to be necessary. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen, but there are certain EU laws that probably have to be adhered to. And EU lawyers are the ones that are best placed to interpret and to identify and to to say, well, this is this is not OK or this is OK. Yeah. 
How, how can the work that you did, talking about this kind of rise and decline of fundamental rights, how does that then influence a kind of discussion around Brexit and what that means for, I suppose, first and foremost, EU citizens, perhaps the ones who are living here, but perhaps also, I, I don't know if you had some reflections on British citizens who lose their EU citizenship because of Brexit. Well, we'll talk about the EU citizens first and then come on to the British citizens. The immediate thought to me about EU citizens is that they're they're losing a whole bunch of protections. Um, and now the UK, and this has, I would say, been evident through its introduction of the EU settlement scheme, which is the scheme that applies now to EU citizens in the UK if they would like to remain after Brexit happens, um, has really brought to the fore questions of who is a desirable EU citizen to be living in the UK. And this this idea of value, where in the EU, that was the whole point to get rid of this distinction between who's a better EU citizen, who's a worse EU citizen, which is what I would say the market citizenship model kind of really brings to the fore, saying you're valuable and you can stay and you can have rights if you work. And so citizenship leveled the playing field. And now with Brexit, the UK is able to Value, like say who they value more and who they want to stay and who they don't want to stay. And I think that's really problematic from a human rights perspective. For Can the British- spell that out a little bit more? That kind of, you know, why, why is that? I, I mean, you've kind of talked a little bit about how the difference between the market-based citizenship and this kind of human rights perspective is that human rights doesn't discriminate between people or in, the intention in theory, is they not, should not, yeah. not to discriminate between people on, on the grounds of their contributions or anything like that. But in EU law, still, freedom of movement directives are conditional, aren't yes. they? Yes. So that would then indicate that the kind of the resonance of that market-based citizenship is still, still there in principle, mm even if in practice maybe a state like the UK maybe overlooked that a little bit, I don't know. Well, I think um, it's it's a long-standing debate in EU citizenship scholarship, I think, particularly the legal scholarship. My understanding, or rather I think my interpretation is that whilst there are indeed conditions which are now codified in the legal document of the directive, the Citizens' Rights Directive, 2004-38, the court is able to interpret these conditions broadly or more flexibly. And this, in some situations, would lead to the court protecting fundamental rights and that discourse over the stricter conditions applied under the directive. And indeed, prior to the directive, there were many cases which I would argue showed that the fundamental rights movement and the underlying message was really, really strong. And then the the EU codified this case law, but very importantly, they did not overrule any of the previous case law. So in that sense, the court kind of decided to choose, and this is what I argue, whether they wanted to apply the strict directive or whether they wanted to apply the more generous rules from um, their previous case or the precedent argument that they set out. And then there was a time where this all became quite clear in terms of there being a choice that the court was going to make. So they, they set out a bit more succinctly when they were going to rely on the directive and when they were not going to rely on the directive. And that led to less protection of rights. 
That's really interesting. I had no idea that they'd kind of made those kind of judgments about when they would bring this in. And I mean, that's my that. argument. That's your it, argument. Yeah. Um, so what kind of cases were they? I mean, I know that you've done some work, for example, on people with criminal records. So what's happening in respect to EU citizens with criminal records? Well, that's actually quite an interesting area, um, which I which I look at quite closely now because of Brexit, I would say. I think Brexit has really shone a, shone a spotlight onto that. It was brought to my attention because it turns out that statistically, after the referendum, there was a significant spike in the number of EU citizens who were being deported from the UK. And when I saw the statistic, I simply couldn't believe it because any EU lawyer would know that actually that is fundamentally against very, very central principles of free movement rights in EU law, particularly Article 28, if we're going to be technical, of Directive 2004-38, which sets out a very strong level of protection against expulsion. It sets out a very long list of factors which state what you have to consider before issuing an order for expulsion. And it is also the place where you can see what is known as enhanced protection against expulsion, the longer you've been in the country. So a permanent resident, which is a five-year resident in the EU, would be protected stronger than somebody who had been there less time. And even further, if you had been there for longer than 10 years, you'd get even more protection or if you were a minor. So it really shocked me to see that the UK were expelling EU citizens, even though they were still bound by EU law. And it just, to me, it brought up the question of, again, valuing certain individuals, because it turns out, and there was a lot of um, news surrounding this at the time, that perhaps a significant number of these individuals that were being deported were rough sleepers. And these rough sleepers were often Eastern European or the Roma community rough sleepers. And there is, I mean, significant amount of scholarship already around the treatment of these um, types of EU citizens. So kind of EU citizens who were already racialized, essentially. Exactly. And so the rough sleeper saga is a very interesting saga because the there was a disproportionate um, number of EU citizens affected who should have been protected. And the justification behind the expulsion, which you have to do in EU law as well, you must justify why you're expelling an individual, was that their rough sleeping was against public policy, which is indeed one of the headings that you can claim uh, expulsion on. However, rough sleeping it was found later on in, in the British courts, in the High Court, that did not it was not a reason under public policy that justified expulsion. And that is where all my interest in, you know, individuals with criminal backgrounds, etc., came about, because I, I simply thought that was that that sh- that really showed a, a clear message from the government as to who they wanted to keep in and who they wanted to keep out. Right after the referendum, where actually nothing substantive had happened yet, the framework of EU law still applied. But There's also an interesting point in EU law, which comes back to your question specifically about those with um, criminal backgrounds, and that is that in the EU, it has been a long-standing principle that simply having a criminal background does not mean that you should be expelled from an individual member state. Instead, you need to be a genuine and present sufficiently serious threat, and having a background, let's say, you know, of however many years, 
does not necessarily make you a present threat. So it is these kinds of, again, like I say, value judgments, simply because you have a criminal record, it doesn't mean you're an, un should not mean that that stamps you as an undesirable individual for the rest of your career or life in, in that EU member state. This is fascinating. And it really is. It really does put some kind of legal perspective onto those broader conversations around bordering that that I'm particularly interested in and how Brexit functions as a form of bordering. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about what you think the issues are for British citizens living in the EU. What does what does Brexit mean for them within this framework of this tension between a market-based citizenship and fundamental rights? I think I have something slightly different to say, perhaps not so much on the market citizenship side. As for British citizens in the EU, you, you had somebody else on your podcast from the Netherlands, Professor Annette Schrauen, speak a little bit about the Dutch case. Um, but that's, I think, the thing that comes to mind immediately. So the Dutch case about the British citizens in the Netherlands who claimed that a loss of their citizenship rights would not be acceptable under EU law, for there is actually a precedent in the Court of Justice for an individual, It's the, the case is called the Rotman case, a very famous, very well-known citizenship case, where a, I believe it was an Austrian national who wanted to be German, but Austria does not allow dual nationality. So in order to be German, he had to renounce his Austrian nationality. So in doing so, he was then applying for German citizenship and Germany found out that he had some criminal records or criminal convictions against him and decided to not allow him to naturalize as a German citizen. However, at that point, he had already um, given up his Austrian nationality. So by Germany, stateless. indeed, exactly. The risk was that he would become stateless. And he went to the EU court to argue that if you make him stateless, he no longer enjoys all the rights and the privileges and the benefits of EU citizenship status. And therefore, it would be an infringement of EU law. And the court in that case was very, very, it put out a very interesting judgment where they basically confirmed indeed that a consideration like the loss of an EU citizenship status should have bearing in whether this individual becomes stateless or not. So they didn't go as far as to like dictate that Germany should not renounce his ability to naturalize or anything like that, but it raised the status of EU citizenship to one of such importance as an independent legal basis. So no longer, so if we're going back to your question about the market, no longer cleaved to the market at all. It was just, you enjoy rights as an EU citizen because EU citizens are any national of the member states of the EU. And therefore, this is a such a fundamental status that it should bear weight in questions surrounding areas where they're actually not allowed to touch because nationality laws are exclusive competences of the member states. They decide and the EU should not be involved. But in this case, I suppose it tangentially appears like they they were saying, no, citizenship is so important. That's fascinating. So that's, I mean, I mean so that's, the, that's a precedent, but of course, it's quite a particular case. Yes, very particular and indeed yeah. criticised by many, many people. Yeah. I suppose it does give a little bit of a hook, though, to a hope that some British citizens in Europe might have that Certainly. they'd be able to maintain their EU citizenship. Certainly. And I think that was the 
main legal basis for the claim yeah. of the of the British citizens in Holland, um, in the Netherlands, when they brought their case before the Dutch court. Interestingly, the Dutch case was brought before the Dutch court and then they decided to refer it to the EU to ask them to answer the question about it. But it was withdrawn before it even reached the EU court because it was decided that this was far too hypothetical a question for the uh, Court of Justice of the EU to decide on. So procedure was the Achilles heel of this case going before the Court of Justice of the EU. However, I have to say, I think that there was an element of perhaps trying to avoid a very politically sensitive question coming before the Court of Justice because it's really a big question of, you know, whose competence is it? Is it not the UK's decision to leave the EU and that should be something that they are like left to their own devices and the CJU maybe does not want to be seen to intrude. Although saying that, um, there was still a very political, um, what is what's known as an opinion issued by one of the advocate generals in the EU, which is let's say like a consulting judge on a case about whether the UK could indeed revoke Article 50 TEU or not after it had triggered it. And I mean, the, and in that case, they said, yes, we would allow it. So the court is not always so political. I would say, though, that perhaps if things were different and that case of the Dutch uh, of the Dutch residents, the British Dutch residents did go before the court, there would be it would be very interesting. It could. And I argued back in the, the time that it could have changed the face of Brexit had it actually gone before the court. In what way do you think it would have changed the face of Brexit? Well, I really think it would have um, set a it's real precedent for the importance of EU citizenship status. So it would have changed the... Well, it just would have changed the stakes for the EU as well. Absolutely. Well, the argument, I think, and the, the thought process behind um, the British citizens bringing this case before arguing, trying to go to the CJEU, was indeed to to stop Brexit, you know, to say our EU citizenship is so important that you really need to reconsider this decision which led to or will lead to our EU citizenship status being taken away in the same way that Rotman, in the case, the, the court said, really think about whether you make me stateless because it affects my EU citizenship status. And my understanding is that the case that was put before the Dutch courts was put before the Dutch courts on the grounds of fundamental rights and not on the basis of a kind of a market-based citizenship. Absolutely. No, it was 100% the constitutional status of EU citizenship and how independent um, and important a status it is for these people with the rights that were connected, their free movement rights, their residency rights. Um, which, I mean, I would say it links very much to their fundamental human rights. It's not necessarily, there's a big question around whether human rights are free movement rights as well. Yeah. But if, you know, their lives would be disrupted, they would maybe, you know, have to move, except all of these things, which I um, have argued is under the heading of the right to a private and family life, which is a fundamental human right um, under a international um, obligation of the European Convention on Human Rights. Yeah, it's Article 8. It is it? Article yeah. 8, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which is also in the EU, in EU law under Article 7 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights, 
which is you know is duplicated. So we're losing the charter after Brexit, as per currently um, the withdrawal agreement. But the European Convention on Human Rights should remain binding, subject to the will of the um, govern- government. Well, thank you very much, Adrian. This is really, really fascinating. And um, yeah, um, certainly given me a lot to think about. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast with me, Dr. Mikola Benson. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by searching for Brexit Brits Abroad on iTunes and Libsyn. And to join in the conversation, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at BrexPatsEU, and you can visit our Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. To find out more about the project, visit our brand new website, that's BrexitBritsAbroad.org. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.